Welcome, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Lots of stuff to get into in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Reminding you, as always, the show belongs to you. So anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, you can make a comment, whether it's Facebook Live, whether it's Periscope, YouTube Premiere. Like I said, the show belongs to you. A couple different things we're going to hit up if you caught the title of the show. We're going to talk a little bit of baseball, but I also want to talk about the history of the Cleveland Browns because I think that's something that doesn't get spoken about enough. We look at the Browns as such a lousy organization, one of the countries and uh, entire configuration of sports' most lovable losers, and you're talking about probably one of the more successful football franchises in the sport's history. They might not want to believe that. You say, hey, how many Super Bowls have they won? We'll talk about that in a little bit, and we're going to get back into Nobody's Listening, the segment of the show where we talk about something that's not related to the world of sports. We'll save that for the end. We're going to talk about God's law against man's law, and I do think those are two completely distinct things. So like I said, anything that's on your mind in the world, baseball, sports, and unified America, if you want, give a show call, number 732-364-3598, 732-364-3598. So there's been a lot of talk about the Yankees, the, you may want to call them the replacement Yankees. The bottom line is the players that they're getting contributions from, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, are players that you would not have expected to be on the team, let alone have any impact that they've had over the course of this season. And as the Yankees are, you know, in the high 30s in regards to games over 500, 40 games over 500, whatever, bottom line is they're going to go out there and they're going to win this division in the American League. And the question is going to be what exactly is the best roster to be put together for the New York Yankees once they start their postseason. They obviously have a stacked team. They have probably more options than they can believe right now because the players that have come in to replace the other ones that have been hurt have gone out there and contributed themselves. So you got to make some sort of line of demarcation. The players that you invested in, that you configured your roster around, and is it worth it to mix in some of the players that have played? And the players that have played, which ones should stay? and be part of the postseason 25-man roster. And there's been so much talk about it that I think it's it's been blown out of proportion because there is a way with 100% of the Yankees being healthy and ready for the postseason that you could have your best 25-man roster and, and include just about every player that both on the back of the baseball card and on the field this year has been and is expected to contribute to the success of this franchise in the postseason. Because, once again, the Yankees get themselves to the playoffs this year. It's not about, are you going to get to the playoffs? It's about, what are you going to do in the playoffs? Are the Yankees going to win themselves a World Series championship? Because right now, the expectation is that if for some reason they don't win the World Series this year, it's going to be a disappointment. So, Brian Cashman and everybody that's involved in the staff of putting together what the Yankees roster is going to be in the postseason is going to be doing so with the expectation that this roster gives them the best chance 
not to advance a little bit in the postseason, not to get to the American League Championship Series, not to get to the World Series, but to win the World Series. And that's what the expectation for the Yankees is going to be. So, I mean, you look at a team that I believe is extremely, extremely stacked, depth in all different variances and degrees throughout the roster and the organization. And the good news is, for those Yankee fans that love, you know, the Arshellas and the Talkmans and the Cameron Mabins and the David Hales and everybody that's contributed to help this team win, there may be room for all those players on this 25-man roster. So you, you think about, first of all, the players that are out right now coming back at some point. And I don't think there's going to be any issue with anybody, whether it's Gene Carlos Stanton, Delon Betances, Luis Severino, Luke Voigt, uh, Edwin Encarnacion. I don't think there's anybody that's going to come back that's actually going to hinder the Yankees' progress. I think every player that comes back makes that team a little bit better. So right now we're going to assume that Stanton is back. We're going to assume that Boyd is back. We're going to assume that Encarnacion is back, that Patances is back, that Severino is back. And I'm going to put together a 25-man roster that's going to include most of the replacement Yankees and all of the actual signed and paid Yankees, the ones that are getting paid that contract that are being expected to be legitimate postseason players. So what I would do, I'd play DJ LeMayhew at first base. I'd play Glaber Torres at second. I'd play, of course, Didi Gregorius at short. I'd give GL Urshela a chance to start at third base in the postseason. I'll get to the full roster in a minute, which will give some flexibility to be able to move guys in and out. Left field, I'm going to play Brett Gardner. I'm going to play Aaron Hicks in center. I'm going to play, of course, Aaron Judge in right, DH Giancarlo Stanton, and obviously Gary Sanchez is catching. Now with the bench, which will be a four-man bench, remember the designated hit counts as a roster spot, and in the playoffs you're going to carry probably 12 pitchers as opposed to 13. You may even want to carry an extra bench player and a less pitcher depending on how your roster shakes up. But in this situation, I look at the Yankees, I think they're better suited to carry 13 position players and 12 pitchers in the postseason. So my position players, obviously, with the need for a backup catcher, which will be Austin Romine, I'll bring Luke Voigt, Edwin Encarnacion, and Mike Talkman. Now you would have thought, coming into the season, there was no way that Gio Urshela and Mike Talkman would be able to make the postseason roster. And that those are pretty easy moves for me. Talkman obviously has been hitting very well. You could make a case that, hey, you could start a game. Maybe you could replace Brett Gardner mid-game or something like that. You, know, you need some sort of replacement in a game, and Mike Talkman could go out there and put up numbers like he has this season. Edwin Encarnacion, postseason experience. Now, you want to switch something out. Maybe you need a big at-bat. Maybe you need a pinch hitter. Maybe you want to pinch hit for Gio Urshela. Maybe you want to pinch hit for Brett Gardner in a big spot. Encarnacion Jagat. And Luke Voigt, to me, there's a borderline on him starting and him coming off the bench. Now, I'm not talking about his health. Once again, I'm premeditating or saying, prefacing everything I'm saying by assuming that every single one of these players are healthy. So, if Voigt's healthy... Voigt could start at first base. If Voigt is healthy, he could also be on the bench as an extra bat. Defensively, LeMahieu, Urshela, Gardner, guys like that give them a better chance defensively. But 
You want to go an all offense lineup, you could play Void at first base. You move LeMahieu over to third. You take, let's say, I don't know, you know, you want to play Talkman in the outfield. I don't know what really you could do in regards to, you know, adding Encarnacion to the mix. You want to DH Encarnacion? You want to put Stanton in left field? Then you got an all, all offensive team there. And that actually looks pretty good. Void, Encarnacion, Stanton, all up, but you do weaken yourself a little bit defensively. But having this 13 man offensive series of players gives you a very good opportunity to mix and match as you feel. Now, when it comes to the pitching, we're going to assume once again that Luis Severino is going to be back and healthy. Is he going to be good enough to start? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go that far. I'm going to say you're going to have Severino. You're going to have his arm, his ability to go out there and throw some pitches. Maybe three innings. Maybe four innings. Maybe he can start him. Maybe he's a middleman after you use an opener. Dallin Batances. Remember him? Well, he's back. In, in this fantasy dream that I got here of the Yankees being healthy and ready for the postseason. So, the Yan I, I would go with four starters. I'd go with Tanaka, Herman, Paxton, and Hap with the little asterisk that maybe you don't start Hap. Maybe you decide to start an opener, and your ability to start an opener will be because of the bullpen that you have constructed. Aroldis Chapman, of course, will be there. Adam Adamino, of course, will be there. Zach Britton, Tommy Canley, Chad Green will all be there. You round out your bullpen with Dylan Betances, Luis Severino, and CC Sabathia. So if the Yankees decide that they're not going to start Jay Happ in, let's say, a Game 3 or a Game 4 situation in a big series, whether it's the American League Division Series, the ALCS, or the World Series, and they decide to go to an opener, I would feel somewhat comfortable with you giving the ball to Chad Green in the first inning, passing it on to Luis Severino for innings, let's say, two, three, and four, and then maybe going to a Batances, a Canely, then to a Britton Adamino and Chapman, and I think the Yankees could very well win that game. Just a reminder, this copyright broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication or reproduction of the use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of programs, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So I was thinking about what looks like it's going to be a good race in the last couple months of the season. That's going to be for the National League wildcard. You look at the other races that are out there, whether you're talking about divisions, of course, the Cubs and the Cardinals are going to be in a mix for the NL Central. You got the Twins and you got the Cleveland Indians probably battling things out for the AL Central. But outside of that, it looks like the NL East belongs to the Braves. Of course, the Yankees are going to win the AL, the AL East. The Braves will win the NL East. It looks like the Dodgers, one of the best teams in baseball, are going to win the NL West. And the Astros are very well on their way to win the American League West Division. So that leaves the two central divisions probably more up for grabs, but I think the most interesting race in all of baseball is gonna be for both of the National League wildcard spots, and I think it's because of the amount of teams that are involved and in the mix. 
assume that the Cubs and Cardinals are going to be in a very fine race to the end to win the NL Central, whoever doesn't win that division is going to be in a good position to win one of the wild cards. You, know, you look at the Washington Nationals, you look at the Cubs and the Cardinals, but you also got the Philadelphia Phillies, you got the New York Mets, and you got the Milwaukee Brewers. And if you wanted to talk about one thing that most of those teams have in common in regards to their Achilles heel, it is their bullpen, their relief pitching. You know, you looked, and you've probably seen some of the worst relief pitching in all of, all of baseball out of some of those teams. So when I'm talking about what the difference is going to be, when we're talking about a wild card, a second wild card, maybe which one of those two teams finish with the better record and have a chance to have the wild card game in their home, or in regards to the Cubs and the Cardinals, the difference between one of those teams winning a division and the other team maybe being in the mix for a wild card, maybe not even making it to the wild card game, it's going to be the bullpens. And none of those teams stand out in regards to great bullpens, but I will say this, you look at the construction of a couple of those teams and they're better equipped to get through major games. Now, you talk about what team out of those six, the Cardinals, the Cubs, the Brewers, the Mets, the Nationals, the Phillies, has the worst bullpen, I still believe it belongs to the Washington Nationals. And it's not for a lack of effort. General Manager Mike Rizzo has done a good job of continuously influxing arms. He made three major trades over right near the trading deadline, getting Daniel Hudson from Toronto, getting uh, Ronas Elias, or I'm sorry, Elias from the uh, Seattle Mariners, getting Hunter Strickland. Hunter Strickland's been pretty good. He added Fernando Rodney. He's going to continue to bring arms in and try to add some influx and hopefully catch a little lightning in a bottle. Unfortunately, a lot of it hasn't stuck to the wall. A lot of the you-know-what that's been flung at the wall has slid itself down to the ground and just stunk. So the Nationals' bullpen has not been good. Sean Doolittle was put on the phantom injured list the other day because of fatigue. No, he wasn't put on the injured list because of fatigue. He was put on the injured list because he wasn't pitching well. Now, the Nationals got some time to figure it out, maybe to use the arms that they got. Maybe a Hunter Strickland can get outs just like he has up to this point in the season. Daniel Hudson's thrown the ball pretty well since he's come over from Toronto. But the problem is with the Washington Nationals is there's very limited depth, but also there hasn't been much of an emergence of somebody that could be relied upon. Fernando Rodney threw the ball well a little bit when he first came over. He's struggled. Seems like at some point, those pitchers are going to get hit up a little bit. Now, you look at Davey Martinez, the manager of the Nationals, and whoever's making the decision in regards to what pitchers are used at what spot. You know, it's going to be natural if, let's say, hypothetically, Hudson and Strickland are the only relief pitchers that are getting the job done for the Nationals. They're probably going to be overused over the stretch of the season. Now, you can see this a lot more prominent in the postseason with all the postseason teams. The relievers that you trust the most in the season, managers for some reason believe that they can go to them every single day. And every single game that you go to these top relief pitchers, the hitters get a better look at you. As we hit what we'll call the halfway point right here in the Passball Show. Once again, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School of Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So, you know, when, when you, you look, you're looking at 
what the difference is between a team that's going to succeed, get to the wild card. I really do think it's going to come down to the bullpen. I think the Nationals are in trouble. Even though they got a couple-game lead in regards to their first wild card spot, they're probably in the best position, most poised to get to the postseason and be one of the wild card teams and probably have the wild card game hosted at Nationals Park. I think they are the most vulnerable when it comes to the bullpen. The other team that doesn't get as much discussion, and maybe as you get towards the central part of the country, you hear about it a little bit more, is the Chicago Cubs. Now, they went out there, they made the bold move and brought in Craig Kimbrell. Craig Kimbrell spent a couple weeks on the injured list. Hasn't really pitched well. He's got a five-something earned run average. And it's pretty hard to throw the whole thing on to Craig Kimbrell. Craig Kimbrell won a World Series last year with the Boston Red Sox. Didn't have the greatest postseason, but was an integral and important factor in the team getting through where they got through. And Brian makes a comment, the national middle relief is terrible. And, it, you know, the problem that's going to be with that, Brian, is that they don't have anybody that they could depend on. Daniel Hudson's been okay. Hunter Strickland has pitched well since they've come over. Those guys are going to be overused. And there's nobody, if you get in the fifth or sixth inning against the Nationals bullpen, that you can trust. And this is what puts them in probably the worst position out of all of the teams that are in the mix for the National League wildcard spot. But as we look at the Cubs, you can make a case that the Cubs might be worse. Pedro Strope is a guy that they've counted on a lot this year. He has been awful. Brandon Morrow is out for the season. First time in his, what's it, about 13-year Major League career that he's going to miss an entire season. A lot of people wouldn't believe that because Brandon Morrow is hurt every year. Brandon Morrow has pitched in a Major League game at least once a year every year from 2007 to 2018. So this will be the first year that he misses completely and he's not going to help the Cubs this year. They could have used him. And you look at some of the other arms that they brought in there, Greg Holland, I'm uh, sorry, uh, Derek Holland, they brought over for the Giants, has actually pitched okay. Uh, a couple of the other arms that they're just trying to get something out of, Brandon Kinsler, he's a guy I don't trust in a big spot. He has pitched well, I'll give him credit. But the Cubs are another team that are in a very difficult spot because it's going to be hard to trust anybody coming out of that bullpen. Now, Brian, I'll, I'll, I'll pretty much catapult off your next point, and I'll talk about the Cubs here. The national strength is that with a healthy Max Scherzer and Strasburg and Patrick Corbin and even Annabelle Sanchez to some point, he, he's had a little bit of a resurgence in his career. The one thing that those guys have in common, and if you want to subtract Sanchez from the list, it's totally fine, is those starters have the ability to go very deep into ball games. And the deeper they go into the ball games, the less pressure is going to be on the respective bullpen. And I don't necessarily see that with the Chicago Cubs, and that's why I'd be a little bit fearful of the Cubs' bullpen being a little more vulnerable than maybe Washington's bullpen in a postseason-like situation. But we're not at the postseason yet, so we got to talk about the best chance based off the bullpen of getting to the postseason. So I think the Cubs have a slightly better chance 
to get to the postseason because I think their bullpen is a little bit better than the Nationals. Maybe a little bit less worse than the Washington Nationals. So then I look at the next two teams, the Mets and the Phillies. And you've heard a lot of rhetoric, whether it's in New York, whether it's in Philadelphia, both teams and their fan bases and the media are pretty down on their respective bullpens, and rightly so. You know, you look at really both teams, and you could probably talk about one pitcher that could be trusted up to a certain level, but even within that, they've had their moments. For the Mets, you could talk about Seth Lugo. For the Phillies, you could talk about Hector Neris. And they both had pretty good seasons, but they both had moments where they've imploded in big spots. So it's not like you can say, hey, the rest of the bullpen is bad except for these two guys. Both of those pitchers have struggled in some major spots this season. And outside of that, how much better would you say that the Mets bullpen or the Phillies bullpen, because I think they're fairly equal in regards to how they could be trusted in a big spot right now. I think they could get outs, but I also think they can implode at any moment. I think if you get yourself into the fifth inning or the sixth inning of either one of those teams' bullpens, then you're probably going to win the game. Because those relievers, the sixth, seventh, and eighth relievers that the Phillies and the Mets have are absolutely not any good. And those guys are the guys you're going to beat up. It's not like the New York Yankees. You're not talking about the potential of a Tommy Canley or a Chad Green in a fifth or sixth inning situation. You're talking about Paul Sewell. You're talking about Jose Alvarez. You're talking about Juan Nicasio. You're talking about Juris Familia. Pitchers that, regardless of what you may think about them in a given moment, are more likely to give up runs than get outs. So when I'm trying to figure out, based off of the bullpen, what team has the ability or more ability to get National League wildcard spot between the Mets and the Phillies, I'm going with the Mets for the same reason that I told you that I believe in the Nationals over the Cubs. The Mets have the ability with their starting rotation to go deeper in games, and if they go deeper in games, that will mean that their bullpen will be used a little bit less. If the likes of Jacob DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard and maybe Zach Wheeler, Steven Matz, or Marcus Stroman can get themselves into the seventh inning on a consistent basis, then that means that there are going to be less outs that have to be gotten by the team's bullpen. Seth Lugo, who can be trusted, yes, and I use the word trust with quotation marks and an asterisk by it, because you can't really trust anybody in that bullpen, can probably get you two innings in certain spots. Maybe once a week you could go to him for six outs. So if that's the case, the meat of the Mets bullpen, which we know is not very good, will not be taxed, will not be used as much. Justin Wilson has done a good job for them. They can continue to hide Juris Familia and Edwin Diaz and use them in low leverage situations and maybe get them going again. But my knock with this is not against the Phillies. I think from the Phillies offensive standpoint, I think the Phillies are a stronger offensive team than the Mets in spite of a good offensive Mets team this year. I just think the Mets starting rotation on a day-in and day-out basis gives you the ability to get six and seven innings every day. And when you're questioning the bullpen, which we will admit has not been good, you can use those guys less. 
and the Mets will be able to do that. So while I'm ranking the bullpens, I'm going number six, Nationals, number five, Cubs, number four, Phillies, close, number three, Mets, right there. And I'll talk about the top two bullpens in the National League wildcard mix. And we'll start with the Milwaukee Brewers, who probably could have a better bullpen if Jeremy Jeffress wasn't on, you know, that even-odd Brett Saberhagen take. Remember, Brett Saberhagen would have a great year. Every time there was an odd number a year, and then an even number a year would come, and he'd be terrible, and then it'd be an odd number a year again, and he'd be great. That's kind of what where Jeremy Jeffress is with the Milwaukee Brewers right now. Great season last year, was extremely dominant, and has been awful this year. You can't be dependent on Corey Knebel. Very dependable over the last couple of years. Tommy John surgery, out for the year. So the Brewers right there are down two big pitchers that helped them get to the playoffs last year and have success in the playoffs getting to the National League Championship Series. Josh Hader, still one of the best relievers in all baseball. He's been hit a little bit. He's been more mortal this season. But is, is still... As far as any team that's in the National League wild card, makes the most fearful and dominant closer, excuse me, that any one of those teams has. So if you want to talk about depth, do the Brewers have depth? They've used Javi Guerra. I'm sorry, Junior Guerra. My, my mistake. Javi Guerra, I think, is pitcher for the Nationals, uh, who was a starting pitcher in a relief role. He hasn't been great. The question is going to be how much depth do the Cardinals have outside, I'm sorry, the Brewers have outside of Josh Hader. And that's why I look at the Cardinals and I think their bullpen is the most equipped to maybe win the National League Central, but if not, certainly be in a mix for a wild card spot. And I would think if we're talking about bullpens, the Cardinals would have the best chance of getting to the postseason. And, you know, it's a shame that Jordan Hicks got hurt. You know, the Tommy John surgery out for the season, it's unfortunate. They've had a lot of guys step up. Giovanni Gallegos, who was acquired in a Luke Foyt trade with the Yankees. John Gant, who was originally a Mets farmhand, was traded in a deal for Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe in 2015. He's come up pretty good. John Brevia has thrown the ball very well. These are guys that are not necessarily household names, but are getting key outs for the St. Louis Cardinals and are trusted on a game-in and game-out basis. Carlos Martinez, maybe he's battling some injuries and it's hard for him to hold down a spot as a major league starter, has taken over as the closer and is being good. He's, he hasn't been hater good, but he's been good. Andrew Miller, kind of in a bullpen by committee. He'll get some high leverage outs, maybe a save or two. He's still there. I look at the Cardinals and I think by the strength of their bullpen, they have a better chance out of any one of those other five teams. But I, I like the Cardinals, I like the Brewers' bullpen, and I like the Mets and Phillies' bullpen enough to get outs. And I think the key for either one of the, those teams' success, either getting to the postseason or having success in a postseason, is going to be the length that they get out of their starters. I think the Mets have a better chance to do that because they got DeGrom, they got Syndergaard. The Phillies got Aaron Nola, and you hear Gabe Kapler saying, I, I'm going to go and I'm going to use him every fifth day the rest of the season. Who cares the way the schedule looks? It sounds a lot like Gene Mock in 1954, in all honesty. I mean, Gene Mock said, I'm just going to go with Jim Bunning and Chris Short. 
and it ended up costing them when they had the most epic collapses in all of Major League Baseball history. It was the 1964 Phillies. It was the 2007 New York Mets. And you could also make a case it was the 2011 Boston Red Sox and the 2011 Atlanta Braves. Worst, biggest collapses in Major League Baseball history. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, the smoothness, and drinkability. You will find in no beer at any cost. So a couple more things we're going to hit up here. Talk a little football because this Cleveland Browns have been in the news. Odell Beckham does a story for Sports Illustrated. Baker Mayfield does a story for GQ. And they continue to want to run their mouths. And it's unfortunate because if you look as as far as one of the teams that you would want to jump in front of and say this would be an absolute sleeper team you think of baker mayfield in the second season you think of odell beckham one of the best receivers in the entire national football league jarvis landry's there you got a team that built up a little bit of momentum for last season and oh yeah whether you like him or hate him for his domestic violence kareem hunt could be their feature back you know, as early as like week five or six of the NFL season. This looks like a pretty stacked team. This looks like a team that could very well turn the corner if they don't self-destruct. And you look at the toxic personalities of Beckham and Mayfield, and you wonder if it's more of a matter of when as opposed to if they will self-destruct. And it's a shame because you look at the talent, like I just said, throw the names Kareem Hunt, and Jarvis Landry is kind of tertiary players we're talking about there. There is a ton of star talent on this football team. Enough talent on this football team that they should be able to win. Now, I'd like to pick them to win a division that features the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens. Obviously, the Cincinnati Bengals may be taking a little bit of a step back this year, a little bit rebuilt, kind of. You know, can the, the Ravens contend? Steelers probably the favorite in that division. But I look at the Cleveland Browns, and the one thing that fascinates me about it is they are thought of as one of the more lovable losers, not just in the National Football League, but in all of the, the, the entirety of sports. You think of the Cleveland Browns. We're talking about a team that's been bad for a long time, and you compare them to the Cleveland Browns. Yet, they have quietly... And maybe in a, in a, in a, with, you know, outside the parameters of a lot of people's lifetimes, been one of the more successful football teams in the history of the sport. There was a thing called the All-American Football Conference, which featured a handful of teams from 1946 to 1949. A lot of NFL teams had jumped ship. Um, it was a competitive league, pretty similar to what we eventually see in the American Football Conference. And, of course, the American Football Conference has some success for almost about 10 years. There's the merger with Pete Rozelle and Al Davis. And you have this thing called the Super Bowl in 1967. And now we think of football as it exists within its era of the Super Bowl. We don't look at football existing before that. And it's unfortunate because if you're a New York football Giants fan, you'd be able to claim a lot more championships if you go back before the Super Bowl era. And the same applies to the Cleveland Browns. They have never 
been to a Super Bowl, they've never won a Super Bowl, and are thought of as one of the more lowly and terrible sports franchises in the entire world of sports. Three guys stand out when you think of the greatness of the Cleveland Browns. And maybe they should infuse this into the team that they have. And maybe the one living member of this group can speak to the team and say, hey, stop being a bunch of jerks. Stop running your mouth. Go out there and play. You're embarrassing your city that has already been embarrassed for a series of about 50 years. Just go out there and play winning football. Jim Brown can tell the Browns a lot about playing winning football. He did that over the course of his career, which ran from 1957 to 1965. He won a, a, an NFL championship. The greatest running back in the history of the sport. He's still alive and well. You know, I look at the old quarterback, and you know, some people that don't understand their NFL history may not even know that Otto Graham, the great quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, never played a season with Jim Brown. Otto Graham played from 1946 to 1955. Jim Brown didn't start his career until 1957. But Otto Graham won three NFL championships as a quarterback. Very quietly is considered one of the top 10 or top 20 quarterbacks of all time throughout the entire sport. You think of the likes of Elie Tittle, probably before the days of Johnny Unitas, and guys like that, but Otto Graham, for the time that he played, was considered one of the best ever. He did it wearing a Cleveland Browns uniform. And of course, they had a coach. And you talk about Jim Brown, you talk about the Cleveland Browns. It obviously would be fitting that the coach, the most successful and legendary head coach that the Cleveland Browns ever had, his name would be Paul Brown. And Paul Brown coached that team from 1946 to 1961. Four-time champion of the All-American Football Conference. Now, the league was in existence for four years. And Paul Brown led that team along with Otto Graham to championship each one of those four seasons. Three more times won an NFL championship. Seven times the Cleveland Browns were champions in a National Football League. Yet we look at the Browns and we say they're the most lovable losers in all of sports. I think it's more of a generational thing. If you didn't see the Browns play, did they really play? But football and its history, unfortunately, have been kind of held back because of the Super Bowl era. And the Super Bowl era kind of bothers me, not because... You know, those games aren't significant, but because it hides a lot of what happened before that. You know, the AFL, the Houston Oilers winning in 1960 and 1961, the first AFL championship. All those great teams in the National Football League until the days of the merger, the Green Bay Packers teams. We spoke about, at the you know, during the death, uh, around the time of the death of Bart Starr, how... He doesn't get as much respect as far as how great of a quarterback he was and how much of a winner he was because the Super Bowl era started in the second half of his career. So the NFL championships that him and you know, Vince Lombardi won before that happened 
before the start of the Super Bowl era. So when we're we're talking about what teams are great and what teams are bad, we think of the Browns as a bad team, and they've been run pretty poorly. They were ran out of the league for a little while. It, it was so poor. And the only way they're ever going to change that is by winning. But maybe part of changing the culture and starting to win a little bit is to embrace its history a little bit more. Green Bay Packers at certain points have embraced their history, which existed before the start of the Super Bowl era. Maybe the Browns could do that. Jim Brown's still with us. If I was the Cleveland Browns and I was owning that franchise, I would love to have Jim Brown up speaking to my team. I would love to have Jim Brown be the face of my franchise. Not Odell Beckham, not Baker Mayfield. I want to hear what Jim Brown has to say. I care a little more about his opinion because of what he accomplished on the football field. Baker Mayfield's in his second year. Odell Beckham is the most talented receiver in the entire National Football League. But is, is a head case, cares way more about throwing quotes and things out there than he, go, he cares about playing winning football. If you're Baker Mayfield and you're Odell Beckham, just go out there and win. Shut your mouth. I'd rather hear from Jim Brown. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Castrol, engineered for today's smaller cars. So I got a, a J80 Cal. Says football was different. And I tell you, you can, we can do a whole show about the difference in football, you know, years ago to football the way it's played now. Obviously, the rules, the accentuation of the offense, doing everything you can to make things better and easier for players to score points, for to compile yards. We understand. Replay. You know, you can maybe get a couple more things right. You can't touch players. So the violence that existed in football that was prevalent in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s is not as prevalent right now. So this is the time of the program we're going to get into is called Nobody's Listening. And I do thank everybody for tuning in to this point. We do Nobody's Listening because it's a little bit of a change in regards to talking conventional sports. And we'll do a little recap of the show afterwards. But here we are, we're going to get into Nobody's Listening. Nobody's Listening is brought to you by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Nayog Avenue and Green Ridge Street. The number, if you're interested, is 73, I'm sorry, uh, 800, sorry, 500, 881.17, located in Nayog Avenue and Green Ridge Street, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Check it out on Facebook and the internet. So I had this conversation the other day and I've spoken about it a lot. Everybody has negative qualities. And negative qualities could, could judge you, be force you to be judged in different ways. But I think when you have negative qualities and you acknowledge them, you at least give a little bit of an explanation of why you feel what you feel. And I think a lot of times society is oversaturated and over-interested 
in uh, rules that are set up by man. Now, I'm not talking about anything that is mortal or heinous. I'm not talking about crime. I'm talking more about law. Law, the way it's set up, is to protect the people. But it is set up in a way that if you do something wrong, you could get fined. If you do something wrong, you could have an appearance in court and maybe you got to do some community service. There's a difference between man-made law and God's law. God's law is pretty strict and set to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. So how does law apply when you're talking about something that is not heinous and essentially a breaking of what you'd say is a commandment? I think there is varying degrees of your interpretation of what the law is. And I'll make an example. I'm going to make two examples and then we'll move on, um, recap the show, and like I said, anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, please let me know. When it comes to lines that are set up by people, now, you know, you want to you get something and there's say you want to get a ticket for a game and there's 20 people waiting to get their ticket, it's customary to wait behind the last person. But let's say that line was formed in a different way. Let's say that line was set up to where it's a group of people coming there at once. You could step up and hustle and get there a couple minutes before, but if you arrive at around the same time as somebody, it's kind of up to the people that are there to kind of figure out who should go first. The other aspect of it too, and I make, I make the restaurant reference because I think I think it's interesting. You go out to eat and you have somebody that takes care of your table. You got somebody that serves your table. You got somebody that picks up your trays and your food after you're done eating it. But let's say you go to a lesser place that doesn't have, let's say, that same type of service. There's no bellhop coming by to pick up your dishes. Is it that wrong to leave your table there? Let's say you're at a Taco Bell or a McDonald's, you, your tray, your food is organized, you're not littering, but you leave your tray there on the counter. Is that okay? And a lot of people are probably like, man, this dude's got some issues. But a little bit of recap of the show today. Um, Yankees 25-man roster, pretty set. I agree, I think it's pretty loaded up to where if everybody's healthy, you could have a good enough mixture of the players that have the back of the baseball card and the players who are replacing the players that have the numbers on their baseball reference page. And I think you could put together a 25-man roster and include just about everybody. Some guys that may not make the postseason roster unless there's an injury, Cameron Mabrin, Luis Sessa, Nestor Cortez, David Hale, Tyro Estrada. Those guys are going to probably need a couple guys to be out to be out on the roster. But Mike Talkman, Gio Urshela, um, CeCe Sabathia, even Jay Happ, I think those guys should all be good to make 
the postseason roster. Ranking the bullpens in the National League wild card mix. You, know, you think of the Cardinals probably having the best bullpen out of the group. Probably a good chance of winning the division in the National League Central. I picked them to win the, the NL Central at the beginning of the season. But even if they don't, that bullpen's going to give them the strength, I think, to come up with one of the wild card spots. You got the Brewers, who have the next best bullpen added a group. Couple games out, but when it comes down to it, and other teams are blowing games left and right because their bullpens suck, I think the, bullpen, the Brewers' bullpen is going to stabilize itself and be strong enough to allow this team to maybe move on. Next, if one of those teams falter a little bit, the Mets, the Phillies, I think they're about the same boat. I really look at their bullpens as very similar. I give the Mets a little bit of an advantage because I believe their starters could go a little deeper in the games. You, know, you got the Grom, you got Syndergaard, you even got the wild cards in Wheeler, Mats, and Stroman more than what the Phillies have. The Phillies will have Aaron Nola and Gabe Kapler going to his inner gene mock just like he did in 1964. He says, hey, I'm going to go to Aaron Nola every fifth day regardless. He's my best pitcher. Gene Mock did that with Jim Bunning and Chris Short. Remember what happened to them in 1964. But I do think the Mets and the Phillies bullpens, they're not necessarily good. I'm not going to give a raving endorsement of either one of them. But they're in around the same kind of trust. Phillies have been decimated by injuries there. Robertson, you know, Dominguez, Neshek, Tommy Hunter, all guys that you're counting on to get big outs for you are not pitching. So the guys that they've brought in, they've done the best they could, but hey, they're vulnerable. Outside of Neris, you know, maybe a little bit Alvarez, who do you really trust there? And the Mets, outside of Seth Lugo and Justin Wilson, who can you trust? Certainly not Edwin Diaz, certainly not Jerris Familia. The two guys that you know you looked at to anchor that bullpen are probably the two guys in that bullpen that you could trust the absolute least. So look at the Cubs and we may not talk about it a lot over on the East Coast because it's in Chicago in the Midwest. The Cubs' bullpen has been bad. It's been worse than the Phillies. It's been worse than the Mets' bullpen. And they added Craig Kimbrell, and he hasn't been good for them. And, of course, you got the Nationals, who are, you know, at the dumpster fire of a bullpen that they have, and it doesn't seem like any move they make can allow them to get in a better position. Yes, Daniel Hudson is pitching well. Yes, Hunter Strickland is pitching well. But you look at their baseball reference page and the back of their baseball cards, and you realize that those guys just, you know, there's not enough sustained success to be able to trust them in a big spot. If the Nationals are going to get good, Sean Doolittle has got to contribute. I hate to say it, they, you got to re- de- depend a little bit on Fernando Rodney. What happened to Kyle Barraclaw and Trevor Rosenthal, guys that they brought over from Miami and as a free agent, last pitch with the Cardinals. Low-budget guys, you know, high-velocity guys that could throw bullets under control for the team for the last couple of years. Neither of them are around anymore. They released them. But I'd be very concerned if I was a Washington Nationals fan over their bullpen. I'd be very concerned if I'm a Chicago Cubs fan over the bullpens that they have. The Mets and the Phillies, you know they got issues in that bullpen. But man, look at Washington. Look at Chicago. I think the teams that are going to be in the best position to win a wild card spot in the National League are the teams that are going to get outs from their bullpen. And I don't know out of the six teams that are in the mix who I really trust. I gave some praise to the St. Louis Cardinals, but 
They, you know, they got a lot of guys that haven't proven it over a long period of time. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, maybe Gallegos and Gann and Brebbia, you know, Carlos Martinez, who was a starter, you know, can, you know, catapult the Cardinals to a World Series. They don't have a bullpen of the Dodgers. And even the Braves. I know they made some aggressive moves getting Shane Green and getting Mark Melanson and Chris Martin from Texas. You can get to their bullpen, too. Spoke about the Cleveland Browns, and I don't think a lot of people invest enough in a team's history because the team has a tremendous history, a total of seven championships in the All-American Football Conference and the NFL from years ago. And we look at the Browns as the lovable losers that they are. Now, it doesn't help when you got guys like Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham running their mouths, embarrassing themselves and the team. We also have an iconic player, one of the greatest players of all time in Jim Brown that's still around. The greatest running back in the history of the sport. Dominated from 1957 to 1965. Was smart enough to get out when he did so he could have a long career as an actor and a spokesman. He's still around. He's still well. Let him be the face of your franchise. Not Baker Mayfield. Not Odell Beckham. God's law versus man's law. Any questions with that, at me. Once again, a reminder, show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We'll be back with you next week. Uh, hope everybody enjoyed the show. Like I said, anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, just throw me a line. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.